pushing buttons and pulling triggers. This is Gun Funny. Welcome to Gun Funny episode 184. Today I'm going to chat with Ashley Lubinsky, aka History and Heels, discuss the Democrats' rush to pass gun control, highlight an intriguing new suppressor design, and talk about the latest victim of cancel culture. I'm your host, Ava Flannell, and Ashley, how are you doing today? I'm doing really good. How are you? I'm doing well. Right before the show, I was just messing around with my plants. I'm obsessed with plants and house plants. Well, all plants, really, but I just got in this Alocasia Azulani Red Mambo. It's a $300 plant. That sounds like a snake. Yeah, well, (laughs) it's a plant. I think a snake would probably be a little bit more justified in a $300 purchase, but that's where my life's going right now. So the funny thing about that is that right before we got on, my husband came into my office and I have the deadest roses that he gave me like two weeks ago, just still sitting in a vase on my desk. And he was just like, I'm going to take these. So that's how <laughs> I handle plants. Oh, that's funny. Meanwhile, if somebody gives me flowers, I have this whole thing where I'll enjoy them. And then a week later, I have to move them to a new vase, change water, cut the stems. They last another week. I don't know where I got such a green thumb because when I was younger, I could kill pretty much anything. Anyways, Smith & Wesson. If you're looking for a good all-around pistol, you should check out the MMP 2.0 series. They have the full size. They actually have all kinds. They have 4.25, 4.6, 5-inch, 17-round magazines. They also have 15 or 10, depending on your state. Chambered in 9mm, 40, 45. Personally, I love my gun. It shoots really well, regardless of its full-size compact. It just absorbs a lot of that recoil, and it's always super accurate. I can shoot bullseyes all day long with it. And also it has the new and improved trigger, which is very clean and crisp. I would definitely recommend check that out. You could also get it threaded barrel. You could attach a compensator. You can get different sights for it Add a red dot. The options are endless. Head on over to smith-wesson.com and check those out. Learn the things you never knew on Deconstructing the Industry. Ashley, I've had you on the show before. Actually, I looked back and you were on episode 13. That's lucky. Yeah, no kidding, right? (laughs) But episode 13, man, that was at least three, three and a half years ago. God, was it? Yeah. It's so crazy. crazy. I know. It's so crazy that it's taken me this long to record 184 episodes, but here I am. (laughs) I have a lot of new listeners since then, and some of them may not know about you. Can you just give me a quick synopsis of who you are and what you do in the gun industry? Yeah. So I have to say that since I left the museum I ran, I'm really bad at this because I do so many different things right now. Yeah. But basically, I'm a firearms historian. So I've got a master's degree and I study the, um, it's going to sound really academic for a second, the macro historical approach to firearms history. <laughs> basically, I look at all of gun history, all 400, 500 years of it, and I track the technological changes and also study how the evolution of firearms and ammunition technology alters industries, how it alters society, culture, and 
I do a lot of work in late 19th century America up through the post-World War II period because those are some really kind of hot times Mm -hmm. in gun history where you start to get the current culture that we have today, for better or for worse, in terms of how people perceive firearms. And so I do a lot of work surrounding that. So I, up until last year, I ran the Cody Firearms Museum, which is one of the largest firearms museum, only accredited firearms museum in the United States. While I was there, I did a lot of different things, but I also was responsible for a $12 million renovation of the museum. It was full-scale renovation, reopened 2019, and it's been doing really well. Even through COVID, they're open. And so now I'm still involved with the museum. I'm an emerita, which is essentially paid retirement at 31. I get to do all the fun stuff that I didn't necessarily get to do when I was doing all the bureaucracy. And so I'm still involved with the museum. I also have a consulting business where I do a lot of writing. I'm actually working on a book right now. I'm an expert witness on civil and criminal cases in the United States and Canada for firearms and ammunition. I do a lot of television and I'm also a producer on a bunch of different history related shows. And also I added casting agent to my uh, (laughs) repertoire for Vice in the past year. And so basically if it's related to guns and history, I'm doing something with it. Wow. That is impressive. I didn't even realize that you were only 31. Yeah. Yeah. Not to say the old 31 right now. Yeah. Not to say that you don't look at just for all that you've accomplished, because I read somewhere that you became, was it the curator of the Cody Farms Museum at 22? No, I started with Cody at 22 and I was curator by, I think, 24, 25. Wow. Yeah, that's really impressive. I had really a really impressive. fast promotion rate. Mm-hmm. So that's why I went from intern to assistant to curator to retired within 10 years. Wow. That's really, really impressive. What got you interested in the gun industry and firearms and all of that? It was a really weird path. I did not grow up around guns. I'm from Pittsburgh, so a lot of people think that then I must have grown up hunting, but I didn't do any of that. It just wasn't a part of what my family did. My dad managed a recreation facility and golfs for his hobby. And my mom's a physics teacher and a professional figure skater. So guns were not a part of what we did. And so I really wanted to be a doctor growing up. I've had over 10 orthopedic surgeries. I was in a wheelchair for a hot second when I was in middle school. I shadowed an orthopedic surgeon in high school. I volunteered at an ER and I was like, this is my path. I'm going to be a doctor. And when I went into college, after my first semester, I changed my major to history because I started getting really interested in battlefield medicine. And during that year, I went on a Civil War medicine tour at Gettysburg National Park. And they talked about how the advancements of weapons technology altered how medical technology had to function on the battlefield. And specifically in that circumstance, it was ballistics. And I was like, huh, that's really interesting. And not long after that, I went down to Colonial Williamsburg and got a similar spiel, but different type of technology. So totally different concepts on medicine and how medicine had to operate. Then one of the really simple things that's really kind of interesting is if you look at the revolution in the 1700s, you had a round musket ball. And even though medicine wasn't as advanced as it would have been by the time of the Civil War, you had far less amputations, still a lot of amputations, but far less amputations than you had during the Civil War. Because by the Civil War, the, well, it was modified at Harper's Ferry, but they had the Minier ball which was the first conically shaped, well, not the first, but first really adopted conically shaped projectile. And the conical shape caused more shattering of the bone than a clean break. And so I was like, well, this is really messed up and also interesting. 
So I switched my major to history. My mom told me I better effing have a job when I graduated. And so (laughs) I basically threw myself into studying everything I could about guns. I learned how to shoot, did internship with gun collections, started doing independent studies in undergrad and grad school so that I could tailor my research towards firearms and ammunition. And it just kind of took off from there. Wow. That's incredible. So then right after you graduated college and you got your degree, what was your first job? Uh, I actually had my first kind of job. It was a fellowship at the Smithsonian. And I started off as an intern and then I had fellowships to basically keep me funded there through the time that I was there. And so that was actually before I graduated undergraduate, I was already working for the Smithsonian. And then I stayed with the Smithsonian for the two years of grad school. So I was there for three years. And then during that time between undergrad graduation and my first year of grad school is when I also started at Cody, which is a Smithsonian affiliate, which is how I got in touch with them. Mm -hmm. And so I would, when I was in school, I would do Smithsonian stuff in the mornings in DC. And then I take the train back and I'd have class at night for grad school. And so spring, fall, I would do stuff with the Smithsonian and then summers and winters, because we had a long winter session, I was with Cody. And so those are my first job jobs in the museum field. Wow. And so have you ever looked back or talked to your mom and she's pretty happy that you took the route that you're taking? Oh yeah. She's super happy. Although she's always pissed that every single interview that I do, I tell that story. Yeah. And she's like, come on. (laughs) She's like, can you at least, can you at least take the F word out? So I sound a little bit nicer. No. (laughs) You know what? And maybe she didn't say the F word. I feel like maybe my my perceived memory just added that in for dramatic effect. Yeah. That's funny. Okay, let's go back to the Cody Farms Museum. I think when I was talking to you last, they hadn't started the renovation yet, but they were going to. And I remember following you on social media, and it seemed like that renovation took forever. (laughs) But what were some of the things that they renovated? And how was the grand opening in 2019? Yeah, it did take forever. It felt like it. The scariest thing I think that happened to me leading up to the actual all right, we're doing it, we're demolishing the museum and all that stuff, was that when I came on as the assistant curator, so when I started full-time there, which was eight years ago now, um, I think it was eight, I don't know, I can't do math, I'm a historian. And so when I first started there, I was in my office and the office was occupied by a guy who had retired and I was going through his files and he had a file marked CFM renovation and I went, oh no, <laughs> you know, like how long have they been wanting to do this? And so it it did take a long time because we had to basically completely recreate the museum. It's a 40,000 square foot museum spread over two floors. And then on top of that, we also had to raise all the money. And so I was responsible for pretty much everything from content to fundraiser. I had a great team that worked with me and helped me crank it all out. And then we uh, had lots of external people working on all the different elements. But once we actually demolished the museum, it was really fast. It was like a nine month install, which got scary some days. And I don't think all the contractors liked me every day (laughs) because we were literally, we fully demolished the 40,000 square foot footprint. And then we had to figure out how to put over 10,000 artifacts into the museum, which is 10,000 mounts, which is 10,000 labels. (laughs) And then on top of it, all the content and how it was all going to fit and how we were going to do interactives. And I remember thinking, oh, well, we'll have all the content and the labels done by the time we demolish the museum. No, we were writing things right up until the last day and changing things because you'd find things that were wrong. But all in all, when we were done, it's a completely new museum. And it starts, we have a hallway that it uh, leads up to. 
And then it's got four or five simulators, firearm simulators. It's got a steel challenge. You can shoot an M2 pneumatic machine gun in our military history gallery. We've got a shotgun simulator, and then we have a long range rifle simulator. And so it's really an incredible balance between displaying an encyclopedic collection, which is not something museums do often anymore. Most museums are lucky to get 2% of their collection on display nowadays because it's Mm -hmm. moved so much more into an immersive educational experience, which by the way, I love, but that's not the museum I had. (laughs) Yeah. And so I recognized that we needed to display our collection. And so we had over 50% of the collection on display right now. And then we also wanted to create an educational experience because We are a part of a larger organization. And because of that, we get about 200,000 people through the door every year. And about half of them actually have little to no experience with firearms. So we're probably the only gun museum in the country that gets hundreds of thousands of people that aren't necessarily your gun targeted audience. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to do better for them and really starting to have productive dialogue about firearms. And so the new museum, while you can come if you're a gun person and see every gun you could possibly want to see. It's also a place where we talk about everything in gun history. And I always say that that's the good, bad, and indifferent. So we talk about any type of topic. Nothing was off limits in the galleries. And it's been really good. It opened July 6, 2019. And we were really excited because we were covered by NPR and Wall Street Journal. And, you know, that's a little nerve wracking, Mm -hmm. um, how they're going to feel about the museum. And they loved it. I mean, they really said that we achieved our goal of creating, I know people don't like this expression, but a safe space for people to really talk about firearms and how they feel about firearms and learn a lot more than they would know just by watching the news or watching a movie. And so they loved it and gun people loved it. So all in all, we get yelled at sometimes, but I think we did a pretty damn good job. Yeah, no kidding. Did they actually use the term safe space? No, no. Okay. I use the term yeah. safe space, but no, the reason that safety was what the, what NPR was focusing on because in the museum, because we have so many hands-on interactives, yeah. we didn't want, and we have so many kids that come through. We were very cognizant. If we wanted you to know how an action worked, we only wanted you to focus on the action. For example, like when we were beta testing things with the actions, so like lever action, bolt mm-hmm. action, what would happen is, you know, a kid would run up to it. And they would pull the trigger, pull the trigger, pull the trigger. Well, that's a horrible example yeah. of what they should be doing. And so at the front of the museum where our actions are, we actually shave the triggers off. So it's just focusing on the action. And, and then we have a whole trigger exhibit back in our science center where they can use and work the triggers. But at every point where you could get hands-on with something, we had kind of like a stop, mm-hmm. you know, and here's the safety protocols. And we even added, what do you do if you find a gun in the real world kind of thing? And so we very much were like, all right, we've got all these families coming through. This is an opportunity for us to actually teach some gun safety Mm -hmm. and have people respect firearms and everything. And so that was really cool. And actually, when we had the NPR people in, they wanted me to give a tour to people who showed up to the larger organization and were not going to go into the firearms museum. And so literally we had to stalk people in the other museums and be like, hello, would you like to go see guns? And they were like, no. And we're like, "But, but come on. 15 minutes. So when I was giving the tour to this family, they actually opened up that their son had gone over to a friend's house and there was a gun out and the kid, his friend picked it up and gave it to him. And so he had handled a firearm, although the kid denied it on camera. He was like, I didn't touch it. The mom was (laughs) like, okay. 
And so they had actually had an experience. They, they didn't have guns in their home and they had an experience where their son went over to somebody's house and yeah. they got a hold of firearms. And I couldn't have staged it to be as good as the real thing was because the mom goes, well, if you had seen this signage before you went over, would you have done that? And he was like, no. And I was like, yes, perfect. <laughs> did something right. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's perfect. I'm going to take a quick break real quick. Talk about SB Tactical. SB Tactical has a new chassis coming out for the Ruger 1022. It's the SB22 is designed with the Unity Tactical to create a lightweight modular chassis for the Ruger 22 Charger, the 1022, and clones. There will be two versions, one for a fixed barrel and one for the takedown 1022s. The polymer chassis lets you install any AR-15 grip, has a rear Picatinny rail, and M-lock forend. If you install it on one of the 22 chargers, this makes it the perfect platform to add a TF-1913 or FS-1913 brace for a great backpack rimfire gun. The fixed or takedown versions are going to be $124.99 when they release next month. But remember, if you use the code GUNFUNNY15, you will get 15% off, and that is at sb-tactical.com. Tell me, what were some of your daily duties, I guess, as a curator? It really could be anything. The interesting thing about the Cody Firearms Museum is that the curator really operated like a director. Mm -hmm. Um, So in a lot of museums, you've got multiple curators who have different areas of expertise. So if you had a firearms museum, you would have a curator who was maybe a military historian and a curator that was interested in sporting arms or or it could be regional, you know, someone who's interested in Middle Eastern or Ottoman Empire firearms. And so you usually have four or five curators who have different specialties to really round it out. And curators often, they can manage people, but a lot of times they're really about the collections and scholarship and doing the exhibitions. But in Cody, I was the only curator for the Firearms Museum And I was also responsible for doing scholarship and lectures and outreach and all that stuff. But then I also had to manage the budget and write grants and work with our development department to fundraise. And so it really differed every day. What a lot of people, though, think that like a lot of people are like, oh, I wish I had your job. And I'm like, "Mm, you probably don't. I loved it because I loved juggling all of those different things. And I loved being able to have an impact on everything that happened in the firearms museum. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people who say they want my job, want my job because they want to get hands-on with the collection. And to be perfectly honest, when I became curator, my ability to get hands-on with the collection really was reduced because I had so many other things. The assistant curator tends to be able to get more hands-on with the collection, but then they're also tasked with a lot of our different duties. But we would do anything from, we would get inquiries, thousands of inquiries a year. And we had one person whose job it was to answer that, but then there was always overflow into the assistant curator and the curator's realms. And so we'd answer inquiries. Every day we get people offering to give us collections. So we'd be dealing with that. And then we'd also be trying to maintain the collections to make sure that they weren't degrading over time. And then we'd have to also plan exhibits. And then we'd also be traveling to fundraise or to lecture or to go to trade shows. So it's hard to say what I would do every day. Some days it wasn't busy at all. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then other days it was complete chaos, but it varied from day to day because we had so many different things that we needed to get done. And some days it was all meetings. And so it was a great experience. I remember when I took over, what did I get myself into? Because when I went to graduate school for, and I got a certificate in museum studies, business is not something (laughs) they necessarily teach you or is required for the certification. And so 
having to learn how to balance the budget and manage all of these different project planning things. That was definitely something I didn't have experience in and coming in at the beginning of my career running a museum instead of most people who do it at the end of their career. It was quite overwhelming. Yeah, I can imagine. Wow. Have you noticed that now with a lot of the people that fought in World War II, they're passing away and let's say their wife or children or something, they find their, I think it's called a locker. They typically have these boxes where they put in all of their memorabilia. But have you noticed that now there's been a huge increase with donations because of that? Not a huge increase, I don't think. Well, Probably with other museums, but because of us, we get so many all the time Yeah, that it's hard to see if things are really kicking up and what people are giving us. And there's really never a downtime when people aren't trying to give us stuff. And unfortunately for our jobs with the museum is because we had so many, we've got about 7,000 firearms in the collection Mm -hmm. and it really runs the gamut of all of firearms history. And so we turn down more stuff than we take nowadays, which is a bummer. Yeah. Um, we tr- if we've got time, we try to find them something in their area, a museum in their area that might be interested. But yeah, for us, we haven't really noticed it. We've been really strongly asking for more modern stuff. So that stuff is coming in a lot. Um, we just got some 3D printed stuff in, which is really cool. And so because we've got such a weak collection from like the 1970s to today, that's where a lot of the collecting mission has turned to. Mm-hmm. So when we look at stuff that's coming in, we've noticed more and more people because of our outreach are recognizing what we need and starting to send things our way that we don't have. And part of that's because Danny has started the Cody Firearms Museum. I'm going to sound like the worst millennial on the planet, but account, I think it's like an account for Reddit, but has been posting on Reddit for years. And as a result, we get a lot of support and firearms and stuff being sent by Redditors who know what we need. Nice. I like it. Okay. So you were also a judge on the TV show Master of Arms and a regular <laughs> on the Travel Channel's Mysteries at the Museum and the Outdoor Channel's Gun Stories. Tell us a little bit about that and your experience with television. I actually love television. <laughs> I feel like I'm, there are a lot of people that say that. I actually love doing it. And this is going to sound really bad to TV, but when you are always down in the weeds and so much minutia of firearms culture and firearms technology, TV is almost like a reprieve Mm -hmm. because there's only so much you can say to an audience in 40 minutes or less. And so a lot of times, with the exception of gun stories, because they always come up with very specific topics. And a lot of times I have to do research before we even get in there because they get some obscure stuff. But when you're doing more mainstream TV, like Discovery Channel, Travel Channel, History Channel, a lot of it is like, you know, the first time the audience is experiencing or finding out about this stuff. So for me, it's a lot of, I get to show up and say things that are pretty simple to me and everyone thinks you're a genius, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is pretty cool. Uh, But no, TV has been really interesting. And it's also been a journey for me because I genuinely, when I got into firearms history, wanted to be the person in the vault, not ever speaking to anyone. I know that that's probably hard to believe for a lot of people, but personally, in my personal life, I'm actually quite an introvert. I've just developed Mm -hmm. the ability to be social because I had to for my job for so long. Mm -hmm. So I used to get very terrified every time I did anything on camera and I would wake up in the middle of the night and be like, oh my God, I said this and it wasn't a hundred percent right. And I'm still there a little bit, but it's gotten better, but it's been interesting because I had, I think, more opportunities than most because the fact that I'm not an old white guy. Mm -hmm. And so I got kind of thrust 
into the television sphere really early on in my kind of knowledge of firearms. And TV is hard because if, you know, not being what people expect the norm to be, then gun people can be really brutal. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've been really fortunate that I really haven't gotten a ton of hate for things that I have said on camera. And, you know, it's all editing too. So you can always get away with being like, it's edited because it really is. And sometimes when I watch back like Master of Arms, I'm like, I didn't say that. Yeah. (laughs) Because for time they have to smoosh it together. And I'm like, well, when you smoosh it together, you actually made it a little inaccurate, but that's fine. Yeah. Um, But I've enjoyed it. And I really, really enjoyed going behind the scenes on it. When I did Master of Arms, I was only hired as a co-host. So on-camera talent. But the executive producers of the show and our showrunner knew that and respected that we were the quote unquote experts for the show. So Mm -hmm. they might have drafted up some sample text initially, but quickly I would every night that we were filming a new episode the next day, I would send my script of what I had to say. They would read it to me in my ear because they needed a clean read in case they were doing a voiceover. Mm -hmm. And so they always let me riff and they made me do a clean read. And so they would just kind of read it to me, but it was always what I wrote. Sometimes they made it sound a little bit less stuffy. Yeah. But I appreciated that they let us actually control at least what we wanted to say and and what was historically accurate. And so that was really cool. And before that, I had been a producer on Gun Stories, which is always fun. But I've gotten to be a producer a lot more. And I really do enjoy being able to be the content creator Mm -hmm. and being able to help out on-camera talent with some of the different things that they may not be an expert in because with so many shows, you've got to do so many different things outside of your comfort zone in order to keep the show rolling and keeping it fresh. And so it's been fun to do that. And then I've recently, like I said, with the casting role, I've also been really fortunate. I've actually had really pleasant experiences with the media. And I know that a lot of people don't have that, but because I'm more of a historian Mm -hmm. and because I really don't get into politics personally, unless it's political history, I have had great relationships with people who love guns and people who really hate them. And a lot of people who really hate them do come to me when they've got genuine questions because they don't understand the technology all the time. (laughs) And so because of that, I've got a pretty good read when people are genuinely ignorant and just really think something's cool and they want to know more about it, but they don't know the questions to ask. And so as a result, I've developed a vetting process with a lot of production companies and a lot of networks so that I've been helping link up really awesome people in the gun industry who might be a little leery of talking to just a production company without any background knowledge or any real experience with the media or with different production companies. And so I've been kind of working behind the scenes being like, um, you know, people reach out to me and the production companies will reach out to me. And I give whole talks to them on Zoom about what not to ask, talking points, this will piss off a gun person. And if you're not looking to piss off a gun person, don't say that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like I broke down assault weapons to them (laughs) recently. And so I'm able to really impact where they're coming from. And then if I get a good read on them, then I'm comfortable introducing them to our network of gun people. Because I think more gun people need to be on mainstream network television. And there are a lot of production companies out there, maybe not networks, you know, all the time, but production companies out there that are genuinely trying to put something together that showcases the diversity in gun ownership, especially recently. And so I've enjoyed doing that because it just helps get our community more mainstreamed because the more people can see gun people of all shapes and sizes and abilities, 
out there and getting their point across, I think it's better for everybody because there's such a stigma on gun owners right now. And so I've enjoyed that. That has been, I mean, I love being on camera because it's fun for me, but being able to impact the behind the scenes production and help people be comfortable with one another has been really an awesome experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I like that you also can voice your own opinion and you're not going off of a script because in my experience, that's how it's always been. It's kind of annoying. Like reality TV is anything but usually. So, and I also agree. I think that mainstream media needs to depict the reality of what gun owners actually look like. It's not just your typical old white man. But I have noticed that nowadays, I mean, a lot of TV shows are getting taken off air because guns have become so politicalized. It's true. What I've experienced is that networks, so with TV, there's a lot of push and pull where the audience might want something, but the people who produce the content aren't necessarily comfortable with that topic. And Mm -hmm. guns is one of those, you know, when you've got big networks where your audience is middle-aged men, (laughs) you know, that want to see war stories. And then your production team is people from California and New York City that may never have encountered a gun. Coming up with kind of the happy balance is always difficult with, with that. I will say, though, that I found more people in production companies that are, even though they're from New York or California, they always get super enamored by what we have to say when they actually get into the meat of the content. But what happens is the networks get very concerned, you know, especially when there's different things going on in the country. And so a lot of the times you'll find production companies, I should probably explain, most of the time networks aren't in charge of their own content. I mean, they're in charge of what the content looks like and how it goes to air, but they actually work with outside production companies to make the shows. Some networks do make their own shows and some do a combination. So a lot of times you will get contacted by like a production company that maybe you've never heard of because a lot of the times they lay low and they sell shows to networks. Mm -hmm. And so then they'll work with the network and then you'll have with Discovery, for example, we had Matador content was our production company. And then, so we had producers from Matador and then we had producers from Discovery. So once the network picks up the show, you've got producers and content people from both sides. And so a lot of times you'll find production companies are a lot more open to all kinds of ideas that they can pitch. And then sometimes in net, like when the network gets involved, it can get a little confusing because they have to go to their sponsors and all that stuff. And so that's where you see it kind of wax and wane. And so I'll often get waves when people will call me for stuff and then it'll disappear. And what a lot of people try to do is they try to connect firearms to larger historical topics, which is what I do for a living. So that not every episode is just guns. Maybe Mm -hmm. it's prohibition and gangsters and how firearms impact that. Or there's this other overarching story so that those are the ways when things don't get necessarily brought into the gun term line of fire when there is current controversy surrounding firearms, Mm -hmm. but it's just a really complicated thing. And there's some really good people in, I know that this is probably not popular, but there's a lot of really good people in the production world that are trying. It's sometimes so hard to get exactly what you want out there. And then there's sometimes where that's all they want. They eat up gun content. That instability sucks for us as people trying to be in the TV world. But the fact that there's still interest, even in the most, contentious times is progress. And the weird thing I learned from a production company that is both in America and overseas is that actually gun programming, like historical gun programming in Europe and arms and armor and ammunition programming overseas is a lot less 
unstable because they don't necessarily have all the contemporary discussions because it's not part of their culture as much anymore Mm -hmm. um, in the sense that it is in America. And so people want the gun programming because they don't necessarily have the guns and it's not as big of a deal to have it over there, Mm -hmm. which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's extremely interesting. And that's something that makes sense, but I wouldn't have actually thought of. Hmm. Okay. So changing things up a little bit. So you also have a podcast called History Unloaded with Danny Michael, who you mentioned before is the associate curator of the museum. Yes. Well, he took my job. That's what I like to say. Theoretically, he's still the associate curator, but for all intents and purposes, he's the curator. You just have to go through a mandatory don't mess it up phase before yeah. they yeah. <laughs> give you the title. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the show and what kind of things you guys talk about. Oh, I think a Redditor that Danny knows described it best as the podcast is Danny and Ashley start on one historical topic and go on a million tangents in the best way possible. That's <laughs> about what our podcast is. So the podcast History Unloaded, it's done sort of through the museum, sort of not. Our producer is an NPR person that also does some work for the University of Wyoming and also the museum from time to time. Her studio is actually in the museum. And we talk about anything from we'll pick an object and we'll dissect that object, or we'll talk about gun laws in American history. I mean, we just got done with a podcast episode on assault weapons bans and the transition from, so before the late 19th century, a lot of firearms regulations were more about people, racism, classism, like would outright be like black people can't own firearms. But after the civil rights act of 1866, and then the 14th amendment, you couldn't no longer say Black people couldn't own firearms. And so the South got very strategic in the way that they worded a lot of laws to change from saying certain people couldn't own firearms to you could only own certain kinds of firearms that were possibly more expensive and therefore totally limited the type of person and the income of the person who could own firearms. And so it goes from being not just racist, but also classist. And so because of that changeover of not being allowed to be overtly racist anymore, state governments got really good at describing the firearm and making sure the firearm was something that was out of reach for part of the population. And then that continued into the 20th century, which translated to federal firearms laws like the National Firearms Act or the Gun Control Act. And so we actually did a multi-part series where we talked about early laws that were nepotistic, that were racist, that were classist. And then we did ones on firearms features that were regulated. And then we just did one specifically on assault weapons bans and where that idea of not regulating the action or the firearm in and of itself, you're not regulating that. You're now regulating the features associated with the firearm and kind of the rabbit hole that becomes trying to regulate that because it almost never ends. And that's why they're all different and they all change regularly. I mean, California, I think is in their third iteration of it because there's always another thing and there's always another thing. And so it gets very, very messy. And so we'll talk about stuff like that from a historical perspective. We talk about gun culture. We talk about what it's like to work in a museum, (laughs) which is not always great. We have some thoughts about that in our podcast. So we try to cover so many different types of topics because our audience is not just gun people, but it's also museum people. We've gotten a lot of people who've watched me on like Rob Riggle's show and stuff that come in from that realm as well. So we try to keep it to a lot of different historical topics. Mm-hmm. Nice. I like it. And then you and your husband, Mark Hanish, you guys also have a company called The Gun Code. Well, he's my, he works for me. Oh, okay. <laughs> there you go. That's how you got to do uh, it. <laughs> no, he's, uh, he's actually president of sales for Ammo Incorporated and he's also a professional three gunner. 
but I just added him to the gun code, which was my LLC that I started in Wyoming for my consulting business, which I've been doing the entire time I was with Cody. Cody let me do it. And then he's starting to get into some consulting as well. So I was like, well, instead of making a whole different company, we have the historical side of the house and then we have the industry side of the house. So it'll expand probably, you know, in the next few years. But right now it was just a single member LLC that I use for the purposes of my work. But Mm -hmm. yeah, now we'll expand more into industry stuff because that's his expertise. Nice. And then also you recently testified as an expert witness in multiple Second Amendment trials. For example, what was it? Miller versus Bracera in California. How has that experience been, especially with testifying for places like California, which the laws just seem so out there? Yeah. So I've done a lot of different types of expert witness testimony. So I do anything from, I do product liability. That's where I started. It was actually product liability, specifically cases where people would reproduce historical firearms and do it in a way that has caused people to not follow the instructions on how to actually handle them safely. And so then they get negligent discharge and then they go after the company because it's a reproduction of historical piece. So I've done those types of things. I actually worked on a murder trial for the Canadian government years ago where I had to identify. It was so I kept being like, I don't know how this is helping you, but I wrote a report on the two rounds of ammunition that were fired during the murder. And one was from 1918 and one was from 1945. And I always used to say, see, if you regulate guns, like in Canada, they'll just resort to using really old ammunition and really old guns because the gun was like a 1917 revolver. And so I worked on that case. And then recently I've been doing a lot of second amendment cases because my area of expertise is so such a broad historical topic. And then how these different types of technologies, when they exist, how they've existed, how they've been used and how they impact culture. And so I am on the current active Miller v. Becerra case. They just had their evidentiary hearing back in February. No, it was bench trial. Sorry. The evidentiary hearing was back in October. And so I actually did go to San Diego and was in person for that and did a deposition for them. I will say though, the deposition was really interesting because the state attorney was actually really interested in the content I provided because Mm -hmm. a lot of people don't hire historians (laughs) in modern gun cases. And so it's interesting because I'm not there to say I agree with the law or not agree with the law. Obviously, I've got my own personal opinions, but professionally, I'm not there to agree with it or disagree with it. I'm there to write a report based on what the case is at hand. So with that case, you can actually find my report on gunpolicy.org. I think, no, firearmspolicycoalition.org. Gunpolicy.org is not the same site. And you can read all the Miller v. Becerra cases they posted all publicly. But for that one, I was asked to break down the penal code firearms features that are regulated and provide a historical overview on how long they've been around, how they've been used. And so it started with dissecting semi-automatic technology, center fire technology, which is the center of a lot of these laws, and then going into things like pistol grips, folding and telescoping stocks, flash hiders, suppressors, all that stuff. And when they started in history, because there's a lot of conversation around, I think it was There's been a couple of laws that have this dialogue and the wording of where the loophole is that you can regulate things that are not common use or unusually dangerous. And so a lot of arguments are made that certain features are not common use. And when you look at the history, that's just not true. They've been around for centuries in common use. Mm -hmm. And so the law firm hired me to basically write a report to say, this is the history of the features they've been around, they've been used, and this is why they've been used. 
And one thing that comes up very often, especially because I also worked on the Gatiss versus the ATF case, which is the bump stock case as well. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of crossover between my expertise in these areas and what I write. But a lot of what I write about too is the fact that the arguments are also made that these are military style firearms. And historically speaking, the civilian population has always had better firearms than the military. And so when you're looking at a lot of these features that pop up, they're not necessarily a feature that was adopted right away by the military. It was adopted because it was better for civilians. It was too expensive for the military. So the civilian market got it. I do a lot of kind of myth busting with the current talking points and the current rhetoric that gets brought up and then infused into these laws because historically speaking, it's just not accurate. Mm -hmm. And I got asked on PBS a couple of years ago if I hate when everybody uses the wrong terminology for everything. And I said, people usually write that off as just being pedantic. But if you're writing a law, one, you want someone to know the technology in and out for the point that they're not just arbitrarily regulating things. And then also wording matters in laws absolutely, uh, so much. And so you obviously want them to be able to use the correct term and know what the term means and how it's been used historically. And there's just not a lot of that going on when you see modern laws being made. But as a historian, it gets incredibly frustrating. So I am grateful that people are starting to recognize that there is value in understanding the history Mm -hmm. and actually hiring people who have that background to write reports because all that stuff becomes public record. And you hope that even if it didn't help that one case, that maybe it'll help a case down the road and help provide a greater understanding for everybody in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Do you have any future plans that you can share with listeners? Future plans? Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Well, I mean, just kind of keeping on doing what I'm doing. I've got, like I said, I'm working on my book proposal. I can't say what the book is. It's not necessarily straight firearms history. It's more violence in American culture related. Because one of the things I'm super into is dark tourism and why people are drawn to the macabre or why people are drawn to sites of tragedy. And so I'm expanding kind of my brand into that realm as well. And I'm still doing a lot of writing in the food world, the booze world. And I've got something that I haven't signed a contract yet, so I can't say it. But I'm also going to get into a new area of firearms history that I haven't been involved in. But, you know, I'm just kind of keeping on doing what I'm doing. And people can see what we're doing either on the Cody Firearms page or on my Instagram because I keep it updated pretty much every day. Awesome. And then what's your Instagram and other social media? It's at History and Heels. And then my Facebook is just official Ashley Lubinsky. And I have a Twitter, but I don't use it. So don't even bother. (laughs) Okay. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, moving forward, IWI. There probably isn't any gun more iconic than the Uzi, although Ashley, you might disagree. (laughs) The Uzi Pro shares the icon design and incorporates a number of upgrades to the original design. One of the most usable changes for today's market is they moved the charging handle from the top to the left side to allow a top rail for red dots. Additionally, they used polymers to lighten the design and moved the mag release to a traditional location on the grip for more seamless mag changes. You can also get it with a brace from SB Tactical, they come with two magazines, 120 round and 125 round. You can also get the 32 round magazines as well. Check those out at IWI.us. Remember, if you find any magazines, swag, any accessories, if you use the code GUNFUNNY15, you will get 15% off. And again, that is at IWI.us. 
All right, time to talk politics. Politics. What is going on in the world today? It's political AF. Democrats rushing to pass gun control. The two bills in question right now are H.R. 8 and H.R. 1446. They're being pushed to a full vote without the normal process of going through committee first. H.R. 8 will criminalize the private transfer of firearms, and H.R. 1446 would close the so-called, quote-unquote, Charleston loophole, named after the Charleston shooting where the shooter was able to purchase a firearm because the FBI did not respond before the three-day delay expiring on the next check. What does this mean? So any firearms transferred would be illegal without going through an FFL for a background check. The only exemption would be for transfer to an immediate family member. So you might think like, okay, well, what's wrong with that? The problem is, take COVID, for example, when everything was shutting down and in some states, firearm stores were considered essential and other states they weren't. But I know even if they were open, background checks were taking, I don't know, I want to say they're almost like two weeks out. Imagine if cops aren't showing up unless it's a violent crime, which at that point it's too late. Somebody breaks in your house, you don't know if they're going to be violent or not. So for a lot of these people that didn't have any sort of protection, like my friend, for example, her and her husband, they did not own a gun. And I gave them a gun to borrow for the time being just because this was just kind of a crazy time that everyone was going through. We've never really been in a situation where the entire world basically shuts down, only a few things are open and cops aren't showing up. And and not to mention a lot of people are stocking up on supplies, but for some people, they didn't have the money to buy all of those supplies. So of course, when you need something and you're forced to provide for your family, a lot of times you might commit crimes. It's just a weird time. But I, being an FFL, was able to do the background check but they had to wait two weeks. And that's still, I would have felt horrible if something happened within that two weeks between waiting for the background check to come back and then being able to borrow my gun. And I also saw this Colorado pass this where private sales are no longer legal. You have to go through an FFL if somebody wants to buy your gun. But there was also a huge fire a few years. Well, I guess now it's been almost eight years. There's this huge fire that took over and people were trying to get all of their belongings out as people are getting evacuated. Let's say firearm collection was part of that. If they had a friend hold on to their belongings, let's say in a safer place because fires were burning everything in sight, you would also be committing a crime by giving somebody your gun or you taking on their firearm. Just like I think with any gun law, there's always a lot of room for error. And if anything, I think it criminalizes a lot of law-abiding citizens as a result. Let's see, the bill would extend the waiting period to 10 days after which, and this is for H.R. 1446, they would extend the waiting period to 10 days after which it's still pending. The FFL could request an escalated review, which would have an additional 10-day waiting period. So even then, if it was being delayed, now the person's looking at at least 20 days. Both these bills are going to be voted on in both the House and Senate next week. They most likely will pass the House because they have the majority and three Republicans have signed on as sponsors. These bills seem like, quote unquote, common sense. But I think at this point, especially after being in the gun industry for so long, I just feel like any sort of gun laws being passed, any sort of regulation, I've become so against just because I think with anything, even if it sounds great in theory, like, yeah, everybody has to go through a background check to get a gun. 
criminals are still going to get guns, but it just leaves so much more room for error. With anything, you give them an inch and they take a mile. And we all know that right now, Biden, his main agenda is just to really implement as much gun control as possible. I would definitely recommend that everybody take action, call email representatives, and definitely, if nothing else, the fact that they're skipping a few steps. I don't know. It's so weird how the legal process now works and how there's so many steps just being skipped. That alone shouldn't even be illegal. Ashley, do you have any opinions about what's going on? <laughs> Lots of opinions about what's going on. But the biggest thing that we talk about in the museum world and what people don't know or think about a lot is how private transfers affect collectors and then also museums. So I've been on the soapbox before, so I won't go too hardcore into it. But what people don't realize in the United States is that museums are, if they're non-government, they are essentially citizens mm -hmm. um, in the firearms regulation. So they're bound by federal laws. They're bound by regional, state, local laws. And I will say without naming names, a lot of museum people don't realize that we have to abide by gun laws. And I've had to back out of many a collection where there are questionable legal statuses of different firearms. And it's just something that people both in the museum world and outside of the museum world assume that we have amnesty because in Europe and a lot of places in Europe and England, museums do have amnesty from gun laws and can collect regardless of whatever the federal government says for civilians. So with any type of regulation of private transfer with citizens, you have to worry about collectors. I mean, it literally makes collecting super difficult. <laughs> and collectors are our bread and butter who give us guns and do different things. And also collectors, they're a huge audience that would be doing that. But then they're also probably your least dangerous group of people. It's mm -hmm. usually like 80-year-old men who are just trying to transfer their M1 Garand that they really like. And so it affects people that are a lot quieter in the population. And then it affects museums because we have certain types of FFLs in the museum, but not every museum does. And so they have to go through a lot of red tape to get firearms. And so there's other things that are out there as well that are being proposed that are basically trying to regulate even antique firearms, which are defined under the Gun Control Act of 1968, 1898 cutoff. So they're trying to regulate that. They're trying to make collectors justify themselves for why they're collecting, which would basically cripple museums mm -hmm. who are already understaffed and overstressed anyways. And so it's just interesting to me how all of these things get put forward. And there's a whole portion of the population who's not even shooting their guns, you know? Mm -hmm. And there's a whole industry, the museum industry and the historical industry that exists that nobody ever, ever thinks about. And we constantly get teamed up on in these laws. And I've actually had conversations with Democrat politicians who have no clue that this is happening to museums. And my thing I always say is whether you love guns or you hate guns, it's a non-political issue. If you love guns and want to preserve our history, then you want them to be able to be in a museum. If you hate guns and want them off the street, then why don't you put them behind glass in a museum? And so it's something that we just never talk about. And because we don't talk about it, literally nobody knows about it. And there are a lot of Democrat politicians that I've spoken to who are for gun control, but are mortified that they are crippling the museum system the way that they are. They had no idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. All right, Manicore Arms. If you have a Tavor and you want to run a suppressor on it, Manicore Arms has an essential upgrade for you. The gasketed port cover. With the bullpup design, the breech is so close to your face that with added back pressure of a suppressor, you'll get blasted in the face. 
Manticore built an aluminum port cover that compresses a rubber gasket between the pieces to provide a perfect seal on the ejection port cover and eliminate that blast of gas. They're super easy to install and are only $47.95, but use the code GUNFUNNY15 and you'll get 15% off. That is at manticorearms.com. Q&A. There's no such thing as a stupid question. Just kidding. Visit gunfunny.com forward slash contact to submit yours. Today's Q&A. Should I have a firearm for concealed carry or a different one for home defense? Basically, I think they're asking, should they keep the same gun or buy two different ones? In my opinion, I would say it's obviously not necessary. But if you could afford to do so, I would definitely recommend it. I know that for home defense, I typically keep a larger frame gun, has less recoil, holds more ammo. You could also attach a light to it. And in addition to that, that a lot of people don't think about is having a gun on each level of their house. Because for whatever reason, people think maybe they're going to be in their bedroom when somebody breaks in. But let's say you're in the basement, somebody breaks in on the first floor, your gun's on the second. I personally keep a gun on each level just in case. Again, I know that guns are not cheap, so that is definitely something that you'd have to budget for. And then if you're going to conceal carry, you're obviously not going to conceal carry a full frame gun. You would have something that's a lot more concealable, like the P365, the Hellcat. If you can conceal a larger frame gun, then that's definitely better. But I know that a lot of people, it's kind of hard to conceal that. And then also with a smaller gun, you might be able to attach less accessories. It's going to have a lot more recoil. It's not going to carry as many rounds. Although they're getting better with creating these micro compact pistols that hold 10 plus rounds. Yeah, I would say if you could do so, definitely do it. But just make sure that all of the guns that you're using for self-defense have very similar controls and that you train with them. Don't get HKVP9 where ejecting that magazines on the trigger guard. And then you have a Glock 42 for concealed carry and the mag release is different. I think it's just best to be kind of consistent and train across the board when it comes to self-defense. Do you have anything to add to that, Ashley? Oh, for me? Well, I'm 100 pounds and five feet tall, so I definitely have two different (laughs) types of (laughs) firearms for certain things. I also have my open carry gun for when I lived in Wyoming. But no, the whole time you were talking, I literally was just thinking about all the people that are like, you got a shotgun for your home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and a handgun for out in the wild. But no, I agree with that. One of the things that a gun that I really like to fire, but my hand is not necessarily big enough for effective holster draw. Yeah. Is the FN 5.7. Yeah. And where the safety is on it. I'm like, eh, you know, trying to reach it. And so like, I really like shooting the gun. I can control it really, really well. And to be perfectly honest with my life, I don't get to go to the range all the time to practice and do all that stuff. So basically, I really love the 5.7. I think it's a great gun. It's easy to control. I mean, I'm so tiny and I've got torn cartilage in both of my wrists. So I have a lot of different things I have to consider when I'm carrying a firearm. But Mm -hmm. because of the amount of time I can spend at the range and the way my hand works with the firearm, I just don't feel as comfortable carrying it. And let's be real. (laughs) <laughs> even if I was carrying it on my person, it would need to be open carry. Yeah. I'm just too tiny for that. So I've got completely different firearms that I carry for concealment just because of my size. And then also my own disabilities with my hands are very, very weak. So I, I have a lot of different things I have to consider for all of the different stages of defense and carry. Yeah, definitely. All right. Primary arms. <laughs>
I just checked out their gun selection online. And right now, it doesn't matter if you're living under a rock. You know that guns, ammo is just hard to find right now. And if it is, the prices are insane. But they actually have a lot in stock. Anderson lowers $50, the HKBP9, $630. Aero Precision, complete lower for $199. With everything going on, they're definitely not taking advantage like other stores are where they're gouging prices. And on top of that, like I said, they're in stock. Definitely check that out if you're in the market for a gun or any of the other accessories and stuff that they have. It's kind of like a one-stop shop at this point. Also, keep in mind that if you find an optic that you like, and it's the brand Primary Arms, which they make awesome optics, use the code AVA, A-V-A, and you will get a free optic mount with every Primary Arms purchase. And that is at primaryarms.com. Tactic Talk. Discussing popular guns and gear. Love it? Hate it? Find out now. A 3D printed suppressor with no baffles. An intriguing new suppressor was recently announced, and the first two things about it spark a lot of skepticism. The mute suppressor is 3D printed from a proprietary polymer, so it's not the same as your normal 3D printer. It's also different from the polymer in magazine or pistol frames. The first thing that comes to mind with it, though, is how could it possibly withstand the pressure? Additionally, it doesn't have baffles in the traditional sense. Instead, it uses baffleless thermal regulation, where a flash hider and a thermal shroud gases are focused out the front and cool air is pulled in the front of the rear. Supposedly, this allows it to maintain a temperature that allows you to basically hold the suppressor, remove it without it being really hot and you're burning yourself. Just how effective this new design is at sound suppression, I'd like to see. Apparently, the decibel numbers posted are kind of hard to believe. They've actually been less than a lot of the more traditional suppressors out there. But when measuring any of the decibels, depending on what you're using, I know that it's pretty hard to get an accurate number from. So I'd be interested to see how it does in real life or if nothing else, have some independent testing done. I'm also curious how well it would hold up over time. So if the inside of the can starts to erode, you now have basically a lump of useless polymer for your tax stamp. Either way, I like seeing new technology push boundaries, which this is definitely doing both with 3D printing and thermoregulation design, which thermoregulation I actually am not too familiar with. But I don't know. What are your thoughts on this, Ashley? It's kind of cool that all the stuff that they're coming out with nowadays with 3D printing. Yeah. So I, I didn't even think about the tax stamp because I just like to live in a world where it doesn't you know, exist. It doesn't exist. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Well, also too, because in Europe, it doesn't exist in most places. You can go just buy a silencer off the rack. I know. So it's very frustrating. But yeah, it's really interesting because if you didn't have the tax stamp element and all the extra background check element to it, then it would be irrelevant if it eroded over time because you could just print yourself another one. Exactly. I know. <laughs> you know, no problem. But yeah, that, that extra paperwork is a really, you know, annoying thing. But it's interesting to see a new design. I mean, I'm in no way a suppressor expert. But the design has changed a lot over the years from when Hiram Percy Maxim developed it in 1902, patented it in 1909. His used curved veins and heated up super fast. And now we use, you know, something completely different. And so it's just another step in that evolution. It'd be interesting to see how well it works. And if we could just get rid of silencers on the National Firearms Act, that'd be cool too, because then we could just print another one you know, yeah. if it didn't last very long. I know. No kidding. And it's like you said, in Europe and other countries, it's actually considered 
having good manners to shoot suppressed because you're being mindful of everybody around you. And that's why it was invented. Yeah. Actually, it sucks when things become talking points because as soon as they become rhetoric and talking points, nobody believes they're true anymore on mm-hmm. the other side of mm-hmm. the debate. But there's a quote from Hiram Percy Maxim that specifically says that he wanted to improve the shooting experience when you're out with your friends. Yeah. And it was why he did it, completely why he did it. He tried to sell it to the military initially. Meh. Not great return on his investment. So it was a commercial product from the get-go. And so it's sometimes sad because it's exactly what it was designed for, but politics gets in the way of people really knowing if that's the history or not. Yeah, exactly. Stupid, funny, cool, interesting, awesome, as f- Never mind. AF. Dr. Seuss falls to cancel culture. This week, Dr. Seuss Enterprises announced that it will no longer publish or license six of Dr. Seuss's children's books because of depictions that portray people in ways that are hurtful and wrong. They did not specify which illustrations were considered offensive, but the books they are canceling include cartoon depictions of Asian people and other cultures. Considing with this announcement, President Biden dropped Dr. Seuss from Read Across America Day. Even President Obama included Dr. Seuss when he was in office, and Michelle Obama read Dr. Seuss to children multiple times. Shortly after they made this announcement, sales of the book skyrocketed, of course, because now it's considered a collector's item. On Wednesday, nine out of the 10 top sellers on Amazon were Dr. Seuss, 29 of the top 50 as well. And the six to be no longer printed were, of course, among them. I'd kind of be interested to see which six they were, but I don't know. I'm just kind of fed up with everything. Everybody just gets so offended by everything. And and then just to cancel it completely out as if it didn't even exist is just, I don't know. It's getting pretty ridiculous. I mean, Dr. Seuss. It's so weird to me because as a historian, there's lots of questionable things we read and do <laughs> and think about, but it's all... I'm not sure what the debate is, but Dr. Seuss, to be perfectly honest, (laughs) but like with other things, you know, it's the culture of the time, you Mm -hmm. know, and you shouldn't erase it because even if it is bad, then, you know, it's something you can learn from. And it's it's really kind of scary when you see certain things that people are trying to take away because it's like, yeah, maybe it's, you know, questionable, but at the same time, it is a part of history and certain things like I always talk about advertising in this respect when you look at like old gun ads and it's like, yeah hella offensive nowadays yeah. Yeah. <laughs> gun ads but it is what it is you know at least they were marketing to women back then yeah that idea of culture of the time and using it as a perspective on how you want to be today is just something that's i feel like being lost yeah i couldn't agree more all right itunes review so guys if you haven't left a review you know the drill if nothing else you get a chance to win a goat gun ashley are you familiar with goat guns no but i've seen it on your instagram recently and i is it greatest of all time or is it like an actual goat? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's those little tiny guns, replicas of guns, and you put them together and a lot of them function like real guns. You could take the magazine out and it has little ammunition and you could adjust the stock on some of the ARs. I don't know. It's pretty funny. And then it's funny, too, because I have a four pound dog. So I just say that they're tickles guns. Oh my my dog. Yeah. (laughs) I I love miniatures. So, like, I'm sure that I would be super into it. (laughs) Yeah. They're super cute. And it's just fun to collect them all. But if you guys want to check out their stuff, just go on over to goatguns.com. All right. First review is Vlinny Pizza Pasta. Something good about Monday's five stars. Found out about the podcast when Liberty Doll was on as a guest. Subscribed and downloaded a bunch of past episodes right away. Love the guests and the knowledge they bring on guns, gear, and politics. 
Ava is a fun host who brings her own insights. Second review is Bill Third 78 Podcast Love Five Stars. I first heard about Ava on Colian's podcast. I have since tried to catch every episode. It's very informative with great guests. I look forward to every new episode. She and Operator Tickles are a great follow on social media as well. Okay, Ashley, out of those, the first or the second reviewer, I want you to pick a winner to win a goat gun. Oh, no, that's such pressure. I know. Uh, <laughs> um, I am going to have to go with Bill Third 78 because he mentioned your dog. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right. Sorry, so, Lenny, piece of pasta. <laughs> You just made me hungry, but I apologize. <laughs> Bill Third 78, contact me at gunfunny.com. Just click the contact us form and let me know that you're the winner and then send me a good shipping address to get that goat gun out to. And guys, I'm shipping the goat guns once a month. So if you haven't received yours yet, just know that maybe you were one of the first winners. But at the end of this month, I'm actually just handing all of the addresses over to goat guns and they'll ship that out to you. All right, guys, if you like the show and you want to support it, consider becoming a Patreon. You can do so by going to gunfunny.com. Click on the support the show link. There's also a link in the show notes if you want to do it that way. Blown Deadline, he's doing amazing Cerakote jobs. He gives away a $300 gift certificate to a lucky patron every month. Also wanted to thank the $25 patrons who are Corbin Bonafide, Iraq Veteran 8888, Ryan Morrison, Joe Lyons, Justin Paulson, Jason Anderson, Joshua Hamp, Sportsman's Guide, Daniel Treadwell, Keith Calamore, and Melissa Ridings. King of the Patreon, Jon Snow. He wants me to say that most people fear the Reaper. Operator Tickles considers him a rookie. All right, Ashley, as always, thank you so much for everything that you do. And I'm going to actually go reconsider what I'm doing with my life because I feel like, you know... (laughs) I'm like, cool. What am I doing with my life? (laughs) It just sucks because I'm doing so many different things. It's just hard to say it in a quick sentence. Yeah. Working on it. No, I hear you. I definitely hear you. Well, all your hard work is much appreciated. And it's great to see, especially a female, just dominating the industry. So good job. Hats off to you. Can you just remind people once again where they can find you on social media? Yeah. So if you want to follow me, which my pages have a little bit of history, a little bit of food, and a little bit of my service dog. Uh, it's at History and Heels. And then if you want to just have straight gun history, I also do all the posting for the Cody Firearms Museum social media. And that's just Cody Firearms Museum across the board. My personal accounts change. History and Heels is Instagram. And then Ashley Lubinsky on Facebook. Okay, awesome. Well, on that note, we are out of here. <laughs> Want to send feedback? Tell us about a company or anything else. Go to gunfunny.com forward slash contact.